At the top of the news tonight is our nearby neighbor Transylvania, where the treacherous actions of the Fantastic Four have led to the destruction of a historic castle, the awakening of the evil sorcerer Diablo, and his recent takeover of the country. Meanwhile, in the United States, sources in Washington DC, are reconsidering the US government's contracts with Stark Industries. Citing the unforgivably lax security that led to Tony Stark's firm being attacked by the saboteur Hawkeye. In New Mexico, an American warhead of some kind has exploded in a small town near Los Diablos missile base, following a rampage by the monster known as the Hulk, as well as his apparent allies Giant Man and the Human Top. Another missile attack has demolished an abandoned factory in New York State. It is as yet unknown if those bombings are linked. This is Doombot CS5 for the VOL. Zero one zero. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero one zero. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host, Douglas Wall, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doombot F37, and uh, welcome this week's guest, the amazing Abraham Reisman, the author of new book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Hello, it's so good to be here and to be connecting with you again. I'm a big fan of yours. Big fan of yours, too. Really curious to talk about your book. And I'm also really curious to talk about the issue that we're looking at today, Fantastic Four Annual Number 2 from 1964. This is the first time that Latveria kind of came into the picture. Yes, I know. It's, it's, it, I, honestly, I had forgotten until I was reading it this morning, rereading it this morning, much like a lot of the great nuanced supervillain characters that have emerged from comic books, from superhero fiction. Initially, Doom was just, you know, generic. I mean, he was he was very boilerplate as a villain. And I mean, not, you know, he had some interesting contours to him. But like, for the most part, he was just another sort of grandiloquent and megalomaniacal uh, dude in a with a weird Kirby design. Um, He definitely he definitely had a castle in his first appearance, but his castle is somewhere in upstate New York. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. As, as is often true in the Marvel Universe, it's very easy to get from point A to point B uh, if you need to for the story. But yeah, um, there's this castle. And so if you're like me and you grew up in the 90s as opposed to the 60s and weren't reading these comics as they were coming out, your brain gets that hint like, oh, he's in Latveria. OK, let's keep moving. When you dig in, you realize this whole conceit about him being uh, a ruler of a country, of Latveria being what it is. Uh, and of course, you get Doom's origin, uh, the first stab at Doom's origin, which is um, much to discuss there as well. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it's it's a really fascinating piece of writing and and art because you know it's the beginning of what makes this character most interesting, which is that he is in a position of political power most of the time. I mean, obviously, different stories have different takes, but he's he's his his basic conceit is. He's the guy in charge of this one place. And although, again, stories depict things going differently, but um, for the most part, and this is very true in that first appearance, people in Latveria like him. Like that's, that's what makes, for me, what makes Doom a really compelling character is you, you feel like maybe if he did rule the world, it wouldn't be so bad, yeah. you know? 
And that's, that's something you don't get a ton in superhero fiction characters where there's a pretty compelling case made for the fact that the status quo might be less good than the world that the supervillain wants to make. And, you know, that's something that uh, creators later down the line would play with in really interesting ways. Um, and, you know, in this, in this issue, a lot of that is present, a lot of the stuff that is pregnant with possibility. Um, but then there are also weird little details like, you know, the whole weird setup that people don't know Dr. Doom is in charge of Latveria. Like they have this puppet ruler who is the one who represents them on the world stage. You know, it, it's one of those classic early 60s Kirby and Lee things where they're just throwing a bunch of ideas out. You know, I mean, even at, at this point, Stan and Jack had created stuff that had, had caught on. I mean, this is this is 64. So, you know, FF number one comes out in summer of 61. So it's been a few years at this point and they've developed a real following. Um, but they're still in this sort of primordial ooze where they're just coming up with new stuff. It's not, you know, 60, it's not like 68, 69 when the partnership is still going strong in terms of the quality of the output for the most part, but there aren't that many new ideas by that point. Um, this is still a stage where it's just every issue there's some collection of weird new concepts that the, the two of them were, you know, depending on how things may have gone, maybe mostly just Jack were, were coming up with. What do we know about what the creative relationship between Lee and Kirby was like at this point in 1964? Point, unfortunately, <laughs> we know so little about what the creative relationship was actually like at a granular level at any point in the Lee Kirby partnership. I mean, that's, that's the great struggle, right? That's the $64,000 question is what were they doing? What was happening in those story meetings? I can tell you what Stan said happened in bring on the bad guys. One of those um, uh, collections that uh, were, were put together in the late seventies and early eighties um, Bring on the Bad Guys features various stories about prominent Marvel supervillains with introductions for each story. Uh, they're reprints for people who are listening. Yeah. These were not new stories. They're reprints of old things, which were actually pretty hard to find as of the late 70s. It was not like today where everything gets collected and trade paperback and doesn't leave print. It was pretty hard to find that stuff for the most part. So you have this description that comes in there, which is, again, I can't remember the exact year Bring on the Bad Guys comes out, but it's a long time afterward. And he says the origin was they were having a story meeting. They were pacing around trying to come up with some new supervillain uh, because they had experienced success with the first few issues of Fantastic Four and they needed something to keep up the momentum. And according to Stan you know, he was the one who said, maybe it should be somebody doom, like doom is a good word. So maybe Mr. Doom or Captain Doom, and then landed on Dr. Doom. And Kirby was skeptical, didn't think doctor would be a good name, but eventually Stan convinced him and they decided to go with Dr. Doom. And then they came up with, you know, all the basics of that first story in, in FF number five, where it's like he and Reed Richards used to know each other and he wears a mask and all of that. So that's Stan's version. As far as I know, and I, you know, my book is not solely about Dr. Doom, so I, there may be something that I missed in my travels, but as far as I know, Jack did not tell much of a story about how they came up with Dr. Doom. He did talk about Doom, as, as you well know, 
Um, but as far as I could find, and I was looking again this morning in preparation for this, I couldn't find a story that Jack Kirby told about, here's how I came up with Dr. Doom. Um, so in fact, there was an interesting thing, which is in 1970, he did an interview uh, and said, you know, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he said something that was, it was basically, I had a hand in creating Dr. Doom. It's remarkable because usually when you read interviews with Jack about Stan, he is unequivocal in like, saying, I, I was the progenitor. I came up with it. Stan really had nothing to do with it. Maybe I ran it by him, but that's it. Yeah, I, I remember the quote exactly right. It's from 1970. It was, uh, oh, it was an interview. It was a, he was speaking at a Comic-Con that was, okay. it was transcribed later. I had a hand in creating Dr. Doom, which is interesting. I, I don't know what that means. It's 1970, so it may be, for all we know, that he's not yet comfortable, you know, you know he's left Marvel at that point, but only barely. And maybe he doesn't feel comfortable going as grandiose as he would later and talking about how much he created. Um, but it's also possible that this really was something that was a Stan and Jack co-creation. And to get back to your original question, what was the nature of their relationship at that point? Um, you know, Jack was still in New York at that point. So although he was doing most of his work in Long Island at, at his home and the, the famous dungeon where he, he, you know, the basement where he used to do his work, uh, and stink the place up with his cigars, you know, he was coming to the office to at least drop stuff off. And it's unclear how often they were having these story meetings where they would sit down and actually talk stuff out and figure out what was going to happen. And even in those meetings, um, you know, according to Jack, most of the time it was just him saying, here's what I'm going to do. Stan saying, okay, maybe having an, an edit here or two in, in the, the overall concept and then Jack would go home and do what he'd already decided to do for the most part. So we don't know. I, I wish, you know, this is the thing I hope I don't disappoint people with my book on, which is I am not the guy who, you know, traveled back in time on Dr. Doom's time platform and figured out exactly how much Stan did and how much Jack did. I, I, I this is one of those things where, I'm virtually certain we're just going to have to all go to our graves, not knowing exactly how to resolve that ambiguity. Um, but they were, they were still working together in some capacity. And as I'm sure you've, you know, maybe you've already discussed on the pod, um, it, it was the Marvel method, which means, you know, Jack was the primary writer. Um, you know, Stan and Jack would have some kind of meeting you know, like I said, maybe it was Jack's ideas being dictated. Maybe it was a conversation between the two of them. But what's what we know for sure is there was no script. You know, Stan did not write a script for this comic or any of the comics he did with Jack uh, or with virtually anybody. There were like uh, outlines occasionally. Um, there's that famous one for number one and the one for number eight. Um, but when it comes to uh, the Stan-Jack relationship, Stan was not sitting down and writing a full script and saying, hey, Jack Kirby, draw this thing that I just mapped out. He was, they were having these conversations of one kind or another, and then Jack would go home and he would make the comic. And he would, he'd be writing the comic, not with the dialogue necessarily, although he would leave marginalia. And um, although I, I don't have a copy of the, the, you know, the artist edition of, uh, FF Annual Number Two. It is out there. I, I saw in one of in stuff said John Morrow's book. Yeah. He has one page in there, and apparently, according to Morrow, 
uh, Jack left a lot of marginal margin notes for FF annual number two, but you know, Jack for all of these would go home, would come up with the plot based on whatever discussion had already happened, um, which is the primary job of writing. I mean, he would map it out in the form of his panels and that would be the story. And then he'd take it back to Stan and Stan would um, write the dialogue and the uh, narration. And of course, letters, pages and all the other sort of uh, additional text. And that stuff is really important. Like in, in, I'm not going to discount the importance of uh, the dialogue and the narration. It's, it's crucial stuff. I mean, in rereading this morning, like I said, I finished the book a year ago. It's, you know, the long process of a book coming out. So I hadn't really read any, any FF in a long time. Uh, And it's really remarkable how much work uh, the dialogue does in terms of characterization. Um, You know, I, I, there, there's a lot of skepticism to be had about the degree to which we can call Stan the primary writer, but his writing was certainly very important um, and in creating these, these comics and this comic in particular as well. Yeah, you mentioned that, that John Morrow book stuff said, it's a fascinating book. And one of it the most, one, most interesting things about it is that in any quotes from either Lee or Kirby that they're in there, the word writing is always in red because the word writing yes. meant something so completely different to the two totally, of them. Totally, totally. It's one of those awful things where people just talk past each other, including Stan and Jack, but now all the partisans on either side. Um, that is a smart thing that Moro did because, yeah, and, and Mark Evanier, I think the first time I interviewed Mark Evanier, the great comics historian and former Um, assistant uh, to Jack Kirby, I asked him, uh, it was for this article I wrote that then turned into the book eventually. Um, And I asked him, okay, so where do you stand on it? And he said, you know, Stan and Jack were both, neither man was lying when they said they were the writer of the comic because they genuinely believed they were the writer of the comic based on their definition of what writing was. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't want to weigh in too much on either side because A, that's not my role. And B, I don't think there is a conclusive answer about what constitutes writing, but it is, it is a historical and not factual to just, you know, I, <laughs> I was reading the masterpiece edition of, uh, of FF uh, that, you know, that contained this story. And of course, the begin- you know, in the beginning of the book, um, not just the beginning of the comic as reprinted, but the actual edition, it says, you know, written by Stan Lee and pencils, you know, uh, whatever. It's like written by Stan Lee, illustrated by Jack Kirby or, or pencils by Jack Kirby. I can't remember, but there's no attribution for writing. I mean, and, and whether you're going to say one of them is the primary or not, that's a different question. But Certainly Jack was at least a co-writer, um, if not the primary writer. And, um, you know, it's just, that's the way the cookie crumbled that Marvel chose to depict it this way. And that's sort of what they've stuck to ever since. Yeah, interestingly, looking at the original issue, like the first page uh, credits Stanley with script, not with writing. Right. And Jack Kirby with illustration. Right. And that is an interesting point. They did, that would shift, you know, I mean, sometimes um, the credits are weird like that just because Stan was going for an ornate, you know, poetic thing where he wouldn't say art, he would just say like drawn with flair or whatever. But yes, in this case, it is slightly odd. They Stan would uh, sometimes be credited with script, 
which again, <laughs> script is another word where like, uh, if you look at it from one direction, it's a complete lie. I mean, he was not writing a full script for this issue and handing it to someone to, you know, uh, draw out exactly what he'd mapped out, but he was writing all of the script as in like the words the that are used, dialogue. Like, the that's, actual that's language. What, that's it. That's, that's what, what writing was to him. That's what writing was to him. And, you know, it's, it's iffy. I mean, this is why I'm, you know, although I look forward to uh, the discussions that are, you know, we're, we're taping this before the book comes out. We're, I'm looking forward to the discussions, but also <laughs> I'm not looking forward to, again, people talking past each other on this discussion because it gets very p- passionate and nobody's listening. Everybody's just talking. So um, yep. I hope I don't contribute to the downfall of society, but yes, go ahead. Yeah, w- one thing that uh, I wrote in my own book is like one way of looking at it is like, it's a Daryl Hall and John Oates kind of situation. You know, uh, Kirby is so? uh, doing most of the heavy lifting. Right. Um, and Lee is the John Oates is the one who is not the star, not the main attraction, not the person who whose work you are seeing up front, but the one without whom the magic doesn't happen. Totally. I, no, that's actually, a, you know, you're a child of a slightly different generation than I. <laughs> I, I might've picked a different musical reference, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is this, it, it's, a, it, it's a symbiosis. I mean, neither, neither one of them made the exact same kind of comics without the other. And, you know, I don't want to get too mystical about it. I think a lot of times you can end up obscuring the uh, bad aspects of that relationship by just saying, and there was a special alchemy to the way they worked together. I mean, there was, but like, it was a special alchemy that at least in Jack's case, he wasn't particularly fond of, at least later in life when he was, you know, doing these more open interviews where he would, um, you know, rag on, on Lee and Marvel. It, it, it was a magical partnership that um, was very troubled. And I think we run the risk of emphasizing the magic too much and losing sight of the division of labor, which is very consequential financially, creatively, spiritually for people. I mean, people have a lot invested both literally and figuratively in this image of Stan as writer, Jack as artist, and that being the assembly line direction. Um, And it's just not as simple as that, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that's been the version that's just been, you know, regurgitated because it's not really how it worked. Looking at this issue itself, Fantastic Four Annual 2, it's weird. It doesn't start with a Fantastic Four story. It starts with the Doctor Doom origin story. And then we get a gallery of various villains. And then we get a reprint of the first. Reprint, yeah. And then at the end of the story, after you know a couple more pinups, we finally get a new, a new lengthy story. And this, uh, one thing I, I discovered about this story today, uh, the final victory of Doctor Doom, Stanley used four pages from it as Marvel's writing test. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Oh, wow. There's the four page sequence near the end of it where they're actually fighting and uh, you know, Reed Richards is dunking his hands in alkali solution. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that he, he just had, happened to have around. Yeah. What yeah. he happened to have around that he had the, the, uh, all the dialogue whited out and incoming writers from Marvel would get this four page section and have to dialogue at Marvel style. Like that's, that's amazing. Te- that's a test that Roy Thomas said that he has to become a writer for Marvel. Uh, you know, 
Roy may have told that to me and I forgot it was that specific issue. I, I, what's what, along those lines, what that makes me think of is that this must've been the writing test then that the writer of the infamous New York Herald Tribune article that drove a wedge <laughs> yeah. between the two of them. That was mm-hmm. one of my favorite discoveries for this book was finding out that the guy who wrote that a didn't test. even know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, That Friedland that he had no idea about the impact of that article. He'd never heard that the article had had any impact in the comics industry. He wrote the article and then moved on with his life. Although I should put an asterisk there. He wrote the article and then briefly had a moment where even after the fallout of the article, which he knew the immediate fallout, but didn't know that it became this like landmark moment in comics history. He knew that uh, Jack wasn't happy with it because he had called Stan. He said, hey, Stan, I was expecting you to promote this article because you promote everything that ever shows up about you in the media, Uh, not phrasing it exactly that way. And Stan said, well, Jack wasn't happy with it. So that's why it's not happening. But nevertheless, that writer, Nat Friedland, uh, after the article came out, applied to be a writer at Marvel. He he took the writing test and got rejected. But it's such a perfect encapsulation of the relationship between a lot of media figures and Marvel and Stan, which is people are fans. And oftentimes the fanishness gets in the way of the objectivity. But anyway, I I did not know that was the writing test, but uh, it's, it's a good, as far as I can remember, not having the pages right in front of me, it's a good little weird sequence that you can take in different directions, I suppose. There's one other interesting thing in the first story that is not visible in the art that is added at the text stage and whether it came in through Kirby's notes or Lee's script is not clear, but we never see any reference to Doom having a mother in the artwork. That's a great point. Everything about uh, his mother being a witch, like that's all, that's That's, all in the dialogue. That is all in the dialogue. That's a great point. You have, I mean, if you look at it purely as art, you know, as, as a non-dialogued piece, yeah, you just see it could be anything. It's like he finds these books of magic and then learns how to do magic. The books could be from anywhere. It doesn't have to be. That's a great point. It may uh, it may have been Jack turned in that story and Stan thought, well, we need some more pathos here. So let's, let's in- introduce a dead mother and have her be the reason he gets all the magic stuff. Although I don't want to conjecture too much because I'm, sh- well, have you seen the artist edition? I've not seen the artist edition, no. Okay, so I, I, I don't know what kind of notes are in, the, di- yeah. in the, the margins there, but that's certainly possible, yes. It's just like everything about this is so strange and also so resonant. Like there's so much stuff that has been built around what's in this issue. Oh yeah, it's, it's one of those classic moments of Kirby Lee partnership where You read the original and you go, okay, this is not a contemporary story. I mean, it's still written in that, that, and in that, and drawn in that classic style that is extremely clunky by contemporary standards, or at least it looks that way to a modern eye. But the ideas are, even though the ideas are like kind of presented in this tossed off way, for whatever reason, whether they were intentionally deep or were just, you know, what happened to be rattling around in somebody's brain that day, they've had a lot of staying power. I mean, Latveria alone is one of the cornerstone concepts of the Marvel Universe. And the idea of Doom, like I said, the idea of Doom being its ruler and the idea of Doom as this sort of beloved, I guess I already said this, but this sort of beloved figure where like at the end of that first story, you see him walking down the street 
in Latveria, and there's a person uh, on everybody sort of greeting Doctor Doom, like you know, oh look, it's our ruler, it's the master, Doctor Doom, we love him. And there, I found it very interesting that one of the people, it's a thought balloon, not a dialogue bubble, <laughs> thought balloon saying, I can't read the exact phrasing, but basically, boy, that Doom's a great guy. He's really improved this country. And it's been a prosperous land since he has ruled us. Yes, there we go. Okay, so <laughs> I got it. the basic gist. What I love is that's a thought bubble, which implies like, unless this guy's been totally brainwashed, which I guess is possible, they're trying to convey that even in their private thoughts, the citizenry, as opposed to just yelling what they know he wants to hear, are thinking about how well off they are with him. And again, that may have just been some random idea, but it's certainly turned into a lot of fascinating stories subsequent. Um, that said, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really fly to modern readers, such as you know, the depiction of the Romani is not yeah. the most sensitive. Yeah. Down to the fact that, like, his name's Victor Von Doom, and he's <laughs> supposed to be Romani, like, what, he's German nobility, but he's also yeah. living among the, the people. I, 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 you know, it's not, it's not the most well-researched thing, but there is, even the fact of making him Romani, though, that may have been just some tossed-off thing where it's just, oh, okay, well, they like magic, so that can be a magic thing. But it gives grist for smart writers later to play around with that a little bit. I, I haven't seen, I mean, you've read every Marvel comic. I have not. Has there been a lot of dealing with sort of like him as Roma? Have there been stories that have tried to explore that in a more interesting, sensitive way? Um, yeah. The, the books of doom miniseries that Ed Brubaker did back in the two thousands like, mm, okay, about, about his early life. Yeah, I, I've read, uh, you know, I've read a lot of Doom stories. There are a lot of them more that I have not read, but okay, good. Yeah, I would, I would expect that from Brubaker. He's a very smart guy. There's a lot here that you can play with later on. Maybe the most interesting bit of that is at the very end of the, the last story where they have their battle of wills with Doom and then Doom just walks away and Reed explains him. as head of a foreign nation, he's entitled to diplomatic. <laughs> he hasn't actually done anything wrong. This is, this is, Stan would, one of the reasons why we, we should maybe be skeptical about how much Stan had to do with creating Dr. Doom, although it's not even close to a smoking gun, is when Jack would talk about Doom later in life, he was so eloquent in describing this character. Jack had a real affection for Dr. Doom and would describe the things that actually do make Dr. Doom interesting. He would say, He's a vain man and he hates that the world, he hates that he's ugly and thus takes it out on the world. You know, Jack had that great idea about like, what if he takes off his mask and he has the tiniest little scar on his cheek and just that is enough of an imperfection to drive this man insane. And, you know, all of that stuff is, is very potent. And then when Stan would talk about, get asked about Dr. Doom on occasion, his answer was always twofold. He would say, I always liked Dr. Doom for these reasons. One, he has diplomatic immunity, which means it's hard to get him. And two, he wants to take over. This one always is so fascinating to me. I don't know why he would think this is a good point. He wants to take over the world and that's not a crime. Like <laughs> the idea was that the cops can't arrest you for wanting to take over the world. That's true, but also Dr. Doom tries to take over the world, which <laughs> is a crime. And I don't think, I'm not an expert on in international law, but I don't <laughs> think diplomatic immunity 
covers you know mass death uh, committed at the, then again i don't know maybe it does i'm not a legal expert but that always seemed like two weird reasons to be into dr doom that also don't really fly with the way he's been depicted like people are always at i mean with the exception of like little things like that you know the diplomatic immunity thing does is not a get out of jail free card for doom over and over again but anyway um yes the diplomatic immunity thing is a cute little touch but I would not say it's, you know, a core reason why he's an interesting character. Then again, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But it's also, you know, a, a reason that has, like, somebody has to explain in the story why he's just kind of, like, walking off into the distance yes, in yes. the story. And we'll, we'll live to fight again, yes. There, there are interesting later, you know what, I shouldn't totally dismiss the diplomatic community thing. There have been interesting uses of that over time. I just always thought it was a little silly to act like it's a complete panacea you know, diplomatic only, it only gets you so far with parking tickets, you know. Um, kidnapping. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a problem. But you know, if yeah. kidnapping aside, though, like even in his very first appearance, Doom doesn't actually do anything sketchy. Well, yeah, he just sends people back in time so they yeah. can steal Blackbeard's tre- beard's treasure yeah. and help him use magical amulets to take over the world. I mean, right. that's who hasn't kind of an afternoon know, activity uh, for me. But like the moment that he shows up, Reed is like, oh, this guy's the worst. We have to take him down. Like, yeah. what do you do? Oh, no, he's the worst. Trust me, he's the worst. Yeah, right. But I mean, he knew him. I mean, it's that's it's almost a classic <laughs> sort of like, oh, there's this guy I know from college. He's going to try to talk to you about his poetry. Just don't listen to him. He's awful. <laughs> exactly. um, you know, I, it's, I, I do like that they included the college stuff in uh, ha- where like Reed has to get a new roommate and it's Ben because like <laughs> doom is just too much of a dick and he can't <laughs> like they, they end up, uh, you know, having this falling out very early on just seeing doom at college being a jerk is always very entertaining to me. The other thing that's really odd about this story is that before he and Reed have their, their battle of wills, their like literal battle of wills with the like will battling gun or whatever the heck that is. Uh, <laughs> we get his one moment of doubt ever mm. where he says, and so my final and complete victory is almost within my grasp, but what does it mean? Will I be any happier once I've defeated the fantastic four? No yes. victory, no triumph can ever restore my normal face to me. No conquest can make me the man I once was. This is the one time we ever see him doubt himself ever. Ever over the course of, of what? Ever over the course of like 60 years. Really? Oh, okay. Pretty well, much. You know more <laughs> than I do. Like, yeah. I'm th- there may be flickers of it at other times, but the actual sort of like self-questioning, like, is this what really what I want? Once he has in his mind that he has beaten Reed, that never comes up again. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, he he is a very self-confident character and that's one of the things that makes him you know, sexy. All of the supervillains have some degree of self-confidence. That's how it has to work. But having that one little crack in the armor, so to speak, um, I suppose you're right, does add, even if it's just that one little bit, it's the princess and the pea. Like it, if you can remember that bit, or at least have it be somewhat implicit in the way that a story is being told later, it can really add interesting nuances and, and contours to the character. I mean, you know, my, my favorite Doom moment is not in this. I mean, I'm very much a child of my generation and often have the recency bias of things that I like because they were written in an idiom that's more flows better in my brain. But, 
you know, in the lead up to secret wars, the, the most recent secret wars yeah. of our many secret wars is when he's having the meeting with Namor, you know, his old, yeah. old pal Namor from, yeah. from back in the day, um, from FF number six, and says, uh, Doom is no man's second choice. You know, mm-hmm. Namor comes to him for help on this thing that the Cabal is doing because Doom has not been involved. And he says, you know, you didn't ask me the first time and I'm not doing it now because you didn't ask me the first time. Doom is no man's second choice. And that kind of, it's in the hands of the really good writers for Dr. Doom and Lee and Kirby definitely were, obviously. You see him as this almost imperviously self-confident guy. And, you know, at times that can be boilerplate because of course, like I said, all the supervillains have some degree of that. But when done right, you can really make it poetry with Dr. Doom. Two of the central things that are part of his character are in this issue, and they're not linked in this issue. They had to come together later on. One is that he wants to take over the world. He has this limitless desire for power. Mm-hmm. And the other is, why? Why does he want that? And the implication of the first story is like, well, it has to do with his mother for right. reasons that didn't exist at the time. Like the, the, like his mother is in hell and he wants to rescue her soul thing. Yes, doesn't right. even come up. I'm really curious about the stuff that other people added and the way that the way that collaboration works for these long running franchises over time, like people collaborating with each other without meeting, without talking, like just building on each other's stuff. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh, well that's, that's, that's what makes superhero comics an interesting medium at the end of the day, even more so than, you know, if you, if you take away the content for a second, when it comes to the structure of this iterative storytelling, you end up with really fascinating stuff as a result, because yeah, there is no one author for the concept of, uh, I mean, you may have progenitors of Dr. Doom, you have Stan and Jack as the people who were, were there at the creation, but the Dr. Doom that appears these days is the sum total of countless different writers and artists taking a crack at him. And that's true of any character in a big two superhero universe. And yeah, it's, it's magic because you can end up with a situation where Stan and Jack came up with something as a tossed off idea. And then later people actually start to figure out what to do with it, whether that's, you know, in the relatively immediate future after the 60s or even during the 60s with someone like Larry or Roy Thomas or decades upon decades later when people say, well, I'm sure this wasn't intentionally put in there as a story prompt, but I'm going to run with it. And that's where some of the best stuff happens. Thank you so much, Abraham. Yes. Uh, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stanley, Penguin Random House, Crown Publishing, AbrahamReisman.com. The Voice of Lecveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel Nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflecveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. <laughs> Tomorrow, on the world beneath our feet, we investigate the recent discovery of the love men who live in the subterranean darkness beneath the Earth's crust. We'll have eyewitness reports of the love men's attack on New York City some weeks ago, as well as their conflict with what has been referred to as, the Living Rock.
which erupted into chaos at an army base in the southwestern United States. And we'll attempt to get to the bottom of the mystery of Basolo, the king of the Lavmen. That's the world beneath our feet, tomorrow on the VOL, this concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die.